Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. I'd like to pick up on page 54 of the Catechism. We were, last time, before Christmas, we were talking about grace. Um, and, and the one thing that I really want you to catch is that in, um, in how should I put it? In normative Christianity, grace is, uh, is a substance. Um, grace is given to us, not just to kind of like cover over our sinful state, but actually to say, I'm going to give you the power that you need in order to be changed, sanctified. Um, so not just justified, but sanctified. Um, and uh, and that, that grace is important. It, uh, there's, a, there's a great line in the Catechism. Um, God, grace is God's undeserved gift of His love, mercy, and help, which He freely offers to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. Um, so, you know, it's not just, I'm not going to condemn you. It's not, I'm not going to condemn you, and I'm going to help you. <laughs> like, uh, I think that that often gets lost in a lot of the ways that Americans in particular talk about grace. It's this like, well, there's nothing to be done about you, so I'm just going to write you off as an expense, basically. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that doesn't get at what the Scriptures are speaking about when they speak about grace. The word itself, charis in the Greek, uh, means gift. Um, and, and it means that you're actually getting something, right? It's not just a, like, declaration. Um, some of the language that winds up being um, kind of uh, used more prominently, I'd say, in the Reformation is this language of, um, well, what we would classically call what's called forensic uh, justification, this idea of, like, I'm just going to find you uh, not guilty. <laughs> I'm going to find you righteous. And some of the problems with that are that that, that doesn't quite capture the New Testament's uh, teaching on this. Um, what, what is probably more accurate is to say that, yes, that's part of it, but it's also that God in His justice desires to restore us, to renew us, um, and gives us His grace to that end as well. Um, that, that gift is, is, uh, is much greater than, um, and of course Paul speaks about this regularly, it's we've received this grace uh, for these reasons. Um, and I would even say like in you know, places like Titus 3, right, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us, instructing us, to, and training us to live upright lives. Um, so there's something of God's grace in the, in the kind of um, Christian life of ascesis, which we might, which we might call the, the, the training in righteousness, that portion of it. All right, we've got some kids joining us, so I'm going to try to interact with them a little bit today. Um, this is always fun. Um, so let's, let's flip over to that resurrection of the body. Uh, we're on page 54 in the Catechism, and uh, this is a, a really, I think this is a wonderful part. Uh, as a bit of a warning, though, I would say, you know, many people grew up in churches thinking, like, oh, this is what's going to happen to me when I die. And then we read this part of the catechism, and they're like, oh, no, <laughs> what, what happened here? But let's jump in. It's question 114. What does Holy Scripture tell you about your body? Holy Scripture tells me that my body, though tainted by sin, was created good, bearing the image of God and endowed with great dignity. Therefore, from the moment of conception to natural death, every human body and every human life should be cared for, protected, and loved. So there are two parts of this. There's the first part, which is a declaration of the goodness of human life in the body. 
Um, I was reminded this morning reading a wonderful article that our junior warden sent around uh, that, you know, there, there are actually two kinds of life in Scripture. There's bios, which is kind of the natural life, and then this, this thing called zoe, which is, um, which is like supernatural life. But it's actually in the human body that these two coexist, um, and, they, and they share in one another. Um, scripture tells me that my body, though tainted by sin, so I love that word tainted. Tainted is a good, is a good, um, is a good word. I mean, you think about uh, tainted water, right? Is water good? Yeah, it's great. When it's tainted, it might kill you, right? Uh, well, how do you restore it? Well, you have, you have to clean it up. You have, but you don't obliterate water, right? You don't get rid of water. You restore water, okay? Um, and I really want to keep this kind of image going, but um, was created good, so our bodies were created good, um, bearing the image of God, um, and that's a deep mystery as to what that means, but I think it, it really is a kind of biblical shorthand for something like this, that, that we were made to uh, be as Jesus is in the body at the right hand of the Father. That's the, that's the catch right there. And we sometimes think, well, but that, that hadn't happened yet when our bodies were created in the image of God. And, and I want to challenge that in just one sense, which is that what happens to Jesus' human body when, he's ascend, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father is his human body is actually taken up into the very timelessness of God, such that you can say in a sense, like, there was never a time when, <laughs> when this human body was not with God. Um, and so, so God's consciousness of the whole of creation has this, you know, the Im- to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus with God um, at, at his right hand. Um, and so, almost in a sense, you can say that the creation of human bodies both anticipates and, in a sense, like, makes way for this great mystery. Um, and endowed with great dignity. Um, there, I remember there was a wonderful, well, it wasn't wonderful, it was actually kind of soul-crushing, but there was, a, there was an argument several years ago about whether or not the word dignity should even be used with regard to human life. Um, and the, the reason was, this author was saying, well, the word dignity is, a, is an abusive word. It basically says there are people who believe that human life has dignity and people that don't. And if you use the word, then you think human lives have dignity. And if you don't, then you don't. And so it's like this, this kind of really odd argument. But, but Christians have, have been quite clear about this, that human life has a dignity of its, of its own, that no matter how sinful we might be, um, our, our human life has worth before God, um, such that you know, we can't just cast it aside. And that's what brings about this therefore sentence in the catechism. It's therefore. And, and I will say, this sentence is about as boilerplate pro-life language as you can possibly get, so I want you to hear that. Like, like there's no ambiguity here. Human life, therefore, from the moment of conception to natural death, uh, meaning death not hastened by, uh, by poison or by um, overdoses of morphine or whatever it might be, um, is... Um, is sacred and should be cared for, protected, and loved. Now, I say this because, um, or I, I want to say a bit more about this, because uh, end-of-life decisions are something that we don't often think enough about. But I want to urge you to do so. Um, and maybe that comes in the form of uh, filling out a very simple form, which is um, uh, kind of designated power of attorney for that kind of event. 
um, and maybe hand over that that decision to your to your loved ones or um, and in the case of many parishioners at Christ Church, and this may sound a little strange, they've said, well, you know, we just don't want to put that burden on our family. So we're going to put it on you, Father. <laughs> and so I'm actually the designated power of attorney for a number of people in the parish because they say, well, we've talked with you about what we want at the end of our lives, and you know, and we know, and so we don't have that confusion, and, and it just makes things a lot easier. Um, and that way I can sit with family members and I can say, listen, this is what they wanted. And so, you know, and, and we talked about it and this is, this is really the right course of action. Um, but, but keep in mind, it's that natural death. Now, of course, lots of our deaths are what? They seem unnatural, right? Um, it seems very unnatural to die in a car accident or to die in whatever way that people do die. Um, but, but this language is really important because it means that uh, hospitals cannot undertake means to put your life to an end. <laughs> Um, the only thing that is permissible, especially when we come to hospice care, is to let you die. And there's a vast difference between the two, I would say. Um, that, that difference is often um, uh, made not so clear by those who have an interest in not being so clear. Um, but, but I want to make it clear, from at least where I sit, that, um, that uh, we, we stand against all forms of euthanasia, um, all forms of, of putting the body to a hasty death. Um, and that means that, um, and I'm, I'm actually a pretty much a watchdog about this, and you know, in Texas it's actually pretty good, I would say. Like, for the most part, hospice is really good about this. They don't mess around. They give only the dose of morphine that you need to stay you know, pain-free, and, uh, and, and they administer other drugs to keep you from having anxiety attacks, et cetera. But, but for the most part, it's pretty good. In other places in the country, not so much. Um, they, they have a practice of upping the morphine dose to levels that are pretty much on the edge of not really helping you be pain-free. They, they, they really do exasperate these things. Um, they also will withhold unnecessarily um, nutrition and, and IV um, uh, um, hydration, which is not great. Um, but, but I want you to kind of know that, that, that often I get called into a hospital to say, would you intervene here? And it's like, yes. <laughs> and I'll just sit with, a, I'll just sit with the nurses and the doctors and say, listen, like, that's not going to happen, uh, and, and I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen. So it's, um, it's an important thing to keep in mind. I think, uh, you know, medical ethics has been, um, in many ways, the domain of, of people who really do think, like, well, if given sufficient reason, just about anything is, is permissible. And, and that's, that's really horrifying. And I think in certain Western societies, there's this idea of, well, if the quality of life is, is terrible, then we should just end it. Um, and of course, the question is, where do you draw the line if that's the case, right? I mean, do you, do you let a you know, teenager who just wants to die, die? You know, I mean, shoot, I don't think you were a teenager unless you said at one point in your life, like, I just want to die. Like, I mean, it's, 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 it's asinine, right? Um, so I just think what, what I want you to be aware of is that this is happening in our society, it's happening in our world, and Christians stand dead set against this. Like, um, not only, and not only for end-of-life decisions, but at the very beginning of life. So I will tell you that this is actually an area where science has helped Christians actually think quite a bit more deeply about human life. Um, you know, one of the things you can actually see the fathers and later medieval theologians writing about is like, they're not quite sure when life begins. There's a kind of a, a haziness about that. Well, it's because they don't know the, they don't know the biology behind it. They're guessing at it. 
um, we now know that human life begins at conception, the moment of conception. It's um, when, when sperm meets egg and you start to see mitosis, that's human life. Like, whatever you want to call it, that's human life. It has its own unique DNA. It has its own un unique identity, um, even though that, that life is um, uh, uh, dependent upon its mother. Um, it's human life. And that life has to be defended, it has to be protected, it has to be cared for. Um, now, um, there are lots of kind of areas that uh, some people kind of say, well, what about this? It's like, well, there, there are ways in which um, we can think about complicating issues, right? Um, but I think for the most part, we need to say that life is, needs to be defended. Um, uh, and, uh, and this is really coming straight down the pike. I mean, we're seeing that um, it's, this isn't, it's, it's becoming to the point where, you know, um, we're not just talking about abortion anymore. We're talking about all the things that endanger embryonic human life. Like we're really, that's where we are right now in the, in the discussion. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of cause for people to say, well, you know, I mean, an embryo, really? We're going to defend an embryo? It's like, let's, let's talk more about like 14 weeks or 12 weeks or whatever it is. And I just think, you know, biologically, there's no difference. <laughs> like, like, you've, either got, you've either got something that, that is, uh, that's, that's very small or larger, but that's it. Um, so I want you to hear that. that um, uh, Orthodox Anglicanism is strongly pro-life, um, and I, I just want you to hear that. That's, that's just the, the way we put it. Um, all right. But again, this is about death and resurrection, so there's a lot to be said about that, too. Why will you die? Because sin and death now corrupt this world, my body will degenerate and die. But by the will of God, my soul will be with the Lord, and I will rise bodily from death when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so first part of this. Sin and death corrupt this world. Um, we've talked a lot about that in this, in this course. It's, it's uh, um, the corruption of death is um, a terminal disease. You're, you're going to die, and the reason you're going to die is sin. It's not you had a heart attack. It's not you had brain cancer. It's not any of those things. Um, that might be the, the, what you might call the proximate cause, <laughs> but, it's, but it's not the cause, really. Um, the cause of your death is sin. Um, and, and it's important to say that uh, my body will degenerate. And that, actually, that word has a wonderful connotation because uh, degenerate means kind of being, my body will be unborn, in a sense, um, which is fodder for great thinking, right? Um, I'm born into this world, and then I'm unborn, right? <laughs> and uh, that's, a, ooh, that's, a, that's a way to think about dying. Um, but I will say this. In the Christian understanding, death is not the end. Um, I think the way we talk about death often is like, well, it's the end. It's the end. Um, not really. Uh, what, we, what we speak of instead is that, um, as, the, as the wonderful burial liturgy says, that life is changed, not ended. Um, and though my body lies in death, yet shall I see God. Um, so this is the, this is the teaching that, um, by the will of God, my soul will be with the Lord, and I will rise bodily from death when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So there's understanding that um, wh wherever you in your, uh, in your soul life go, <laughs> be with God. But there is a day coming when uh, Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, uh, when our bodies will be raised up from the ground, and, uh, and we will be judged. Um, 
now, however that works, but, but the understanding is that um, whatever eternal life is, it's not meant to be bodiless. Um, eternal life is meant to be in the body. And not just any body. This is the other part that's really kind of wild, and we'll talk about this, but it's that the body that you have now will be raised, um, redeemed, sanctified, changed. Um, but it is ontologically the body you have now. <laughs> that's really important. I think a lot of Christians have been sort of content to say, well, I got a new body. It's like, you might want to change that just slightly. I'll get a renewed body. <laughs> like, yes, okay. Um, but, but it is the body you have now. And this matters. Like, I really want to say this. This really matters. You know, we, we tend to, uh, a lot of people tend to have this kind of idea of like, well, you know, I mean, my body's basically just like a meat suit that I kind of wear. And, and I, I think like, well, what kind of person does that make you when you think that? It makes you somebody who's like, well, then what I do to my body doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want, really, because, you know, I'm going to get a new one, right? It's this whole idea of like, well, it doesn't... But, see, Christians have been very, um, well, they've actually condemned this. This is Gnosticism, essentially. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a kind of like, well, you know, the, the body doesn't really matter, or it's just a trick to get you to think that you exist in some, you know, meaningful way. And, and what has to be said is that your body is real, and that um, it, is, it is God's will to, ha- to have you in the body, um, and it's God's will to redeem your body. Um, and so what happens in the body matters. Um, and this, this gets straight to the heart of what Paul's talking about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 and following, um, just this really deep insistence that your body is you and, and that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is the thing that I'll say it was one of my forays into catechesis was this, this, this understanding because I was teaching uh, a youth group and they betrayed themselves by their words that what they actually thought about their bodies was that they were kind of like meat suits. It's like, well, that's just kind of, that's not really me. It's just sort of like the thing that I have to inhabit in order to live in this world. And, and uh, so, you know, it really doesn't matter what I do with it. And like, you know, I could do whatever I want with it. And God doesn't care about that. God cares about spiritual life, right? <laughs> it's like, hear me. I mean, I want to be as charitable as possible, but, but, you know, I find fault in some of these things, right? So, so for instance, Baylor has their office of spiritual life and don't we love them very much, but, but come on, right? Like, don't limit yourself. (laughs) What's the message you're sending? You're sending, well, we only care about spiritual life. It's like, um, you know, we might, we might even, I I had a parish once that, that said uh, that they were, what, caring for the spiritual lives of the people in the county, you know, and they'd been doing this for 150 some, some odd years. It's like, yeah, but we care about a lot more than that. That's why we have a food pantry and like, you know, it's why we'll get you help if you're hurt or, you know, need to go to a doctor. That's that kind of stuff. And I, I think this is really key. Um, to just say one more thing, this is the reason that we have hospitals today. Because in the ancient world, if your body was uh, misaligned or there's something going wrong with the body, they immediately assumed like, oh, there must be something wrong uh, spiritually. Um, and so they saw this connection, but, but Christians said... Well, no, you're a totality of both. And so we should study the body, and we should, also, we should also think about the soul. And so the hospital was initially a place for people to get healthy in every way, um, both a hospital for sinners and a hospital for those who run well. And this actually, um, you know, Western medicine springs forth from this very idea. 
um, which is a bit counterintuitive now that Western medicine is very scientific, right? It's, but, but seriously, the entire hospital system uh, was developed by Christians who believed that um, there's something to be done about the body when it, when it became uh, ill. Okay, question 116, what is the resurrection of the body? When the risen Lord Jesus returns to judge the earth, he will raise all the dead to bodily life. The wicked will then receive eternal condemnation and the righteous eternal life and the glory of God. So it is a resurrection to judgment. That's an important thing. Um, uh, it's, it's important to note, I think this is something we often let go of, but we will be judged in the body. So I think most people kind of get this idea of like, oh, I'm going to leave my body and then I'll be judged. And won't that be, uh, won't that be interesting? You know, I won't have any of those, you know. This, I think this is kind of the reason culturally behind the kind of um, explosion of tattoo culture, right? It's this idea of like, my body's not really who I am, but I still want to make some mark about who I am and some statement about who I am through this. Does that make sense? Um, and I, like, I'm not going to condemn tattoos, but I do think I want to put your feet to the fire and say, but you should think about what it means to inhabit a real body. <laughs> like, you should really think about that, that God creates in his image. Um, but think about the, the, the reality is that um, when raised, we're raised to new life and judged. Um, which, which means that God is intent upon judging the whole of us, not just, not just the spiritual portion, but the whole of us, like all that we are. Um, and that, that matters, I think. You know, it means that um, what we do in the body is important, like how we treat our bodies is important, um, how, we, uh, how we seek out health is important. What we do in the body matters. Um, ancient Christians were up against two kinds of Gnosticism. One, one kind of Gnosticism said, um, you're not your body, your body is a figment of your imagination or not real. Um, therefore, do whatever the heck you want with it. Like, enjoy it, because it's not real. Like, you might as well. The other side said, your body's not real, it doesn't matter, uh, but it is confusing you. <laughs> <laughs> it's telling you that you actually are a body, and that's not true. So what should you do? Well, you should uh, engage in the kind of asceticism that keeps the body and its passions at bay. Um, and so there's a kind of Gnosticism that's really, uh, like, beat down the body. It's, it's actually this that Augustine's thinking about. In the, Augustine's kind of brand of Manichaeism is like... <laughs> avoid all that stuff. Like, he's, he's tried both kinds, right? Uh, but, but in one sense, he's, he's at the very, right before his conversion, he's having this, like, moment where he's lying under a pear tree, and he's looking up at the pear, and he wants to eat the pear, and he, but he's saying, like, he's trying to say to himself, like, don't eat the pear because, you know, it's not real, and you're not real, <laughs> like, all of that. And, he, and he's just, he's just confused. And it's, it's in going to Scripture that he reads, um, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh. Um, he reads this not as, don't think about yourself in fleshly terms. What he reads is that, uh, that the human life wrapped in the glory of Christ um, is how you keep that body and its passions at bay, but you don't deny its existence. Um, I think that's uh, just a kind of summary way to say that... Um, that's why Christians do both fasting and feasting, right? Like, 
we, we think of the body as something which must be um, tamed and disciplined, but we also think of the body as something that has to be fed, um, and not just fed, but feasted. Um, and, and this is really key. Um, and you might think, too, you know, part of it is uh, it will also change how you think about, like, leisure, right? Is leisure good or is leisure evil? Yeah, well, it depends on how you use it. You know, in fact, it's, it's the moderation that we're after, right? Too much leisure, you're lazy. Too little leisure, what are you? You're working yourself to death. So we find it in the moderation, and this is what, uh, this is really, um, you know, this is important to how we see, how we see human life. Um, okay, but do you want to talk about judgment? The wicked, um, and by wicked, uh, I want to be clear here. Um, wicked, wicked does not just mean those who've done bad things. <laughs> wicked means that those that are, uh, like, like in the biblical image of judgment, like chaff. You know the difference? between chaff and wheat. We're not agricultural anymore, but, but, you know, if you process wheat, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take the, the husk off the, the inner protein that's there, um, which really, um, it's really just carbohydrate in there, um, and, you, and you, uh, you grind it in a mill, and all that chaff, all that kind of excess um, is burnt because it's no good to anybody. You can't eat it. Um, you can't even give it to your livestock. Um, so you, you, there's a judgment between what is fruitful, what is useful, what is good, and that which is not. Okay, so that's the difference, is this, uh, this question. Um, and it's, that's the issue of judgment. Right? Um, okay, and the righteous, those who've been made righteous, um, eternal life in the glory of God. Question 117, what do you know about the resurrected bodies of believers? They will be fully renewed and glorified in the image of Christ, perfected after the manner of his own resurrected and ascended body. Um, the church in the New Testament witnesses the resurrection, right? Like they see the resurrection of Jesus with their own eyes, and the takeaway from this is what? Our bodies were made to be like Jesus' body, and therefore, someday, we'll rise like he did from the ground. Um, and, you know, Paul, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is so insistent upon this, and he says, you know, if, if the resurrection of the body didn't happen, then we're of all men to be pitied, because it basically means that we're going to die, we're going to be buried, and that's going to be it. Um, and Paul, of course, in the Acts of the Apostles, goes on at length saying, it is on account of the resurrection of the dead that I'm here, here before you today, when he stands trial. He's saying, this is precisely about the resurrection of the dead. Um, and of course, there's this battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, in Scripture, the, the prime difference between Pharisees and Sadducees is the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees deny it. Um, and so he's this is, the, this is the fight that's being picked, right? It's like, okay, good. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they also believe that it's human righteousness on its kind of own merits that will bring this about. Um, we'll get everybody right, and then the dead will be raised. Um, and in a sense, the best way to remember the dead, the best way to remember the ancestor is to live a righteous life. 
um, in hopes that you can, by getting everybody perfected, like raise the dead, uh, bring about this thing. Of course, Christians teach that what brings about the resurrection of the dead is that one man, <laughs> one man leads a righteous life, and he is raised from the dead on behalf of all. And it's because of this and by this power that you and I and even the wicked will be raised. Okay, that's, that's the teaching. And I think this is really key. Um, I also think it matters that we say this for one big glaring reason, which is that when we encounter human beings, any human being, we actually are, we have to believe something about their fate, right? Like, they're endowed with glory. Um, I, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis's wonderful sermon, you know, um, uh, The Weight of Glory, which is that outside of the sacrament, there's nothing more holy, nothing more glorious than the human being that's sitting right beside you. Um, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how mean they are, no, it doesn't matter. Um, they will be raised from the dead after the, man, after the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, they're being raised to be judged, but, but the reality of it is that that is the, that is the end uh, uh, of, of your life, is to be raised, raised to new life. Um, some Christians have believed this so strongly and so firmly that they'll say something like, um, that, you know, in the resurrection of the dead, everyone will be 33 years old, because that was how old Jesus was when he was raised from the dead. And I kind of think about that and think, man, 33-year-old me, I don't want to be that again ever. Like, <laughs> some of you might be, oh, yes, 33 would be great. <laughs> like, that was the perfect time. Uh, but but this, is, this is just to say like, uh, um, that, that there is, there, there is a, uh, there's been some thought about that, right? Um, I, think, I think a lot of older people are like, well, I don't want to be raised in, in my body like this. You know, it's like, well, renewed, renewed, restored, perfected. Um, and we've asked this question about Jesus' body. His resurrected body is mysterious, isn't it? It's very strange. Like, he can appear behind locked doors. He can, uh, he can disappear and reappear, th- you know, 100 miles away plus. Um, he can, uh, all those things are possible um, because he has a glorious body. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Right. So, historically, I'll say this, historically, Christians have stood firmly, firmly against things like, um, like uh, um, cremation. And the reason is that it's a desecration of the body, not because it's like, well, God can't put the body back together. It's also because pagans burn bodies, like, <laughs> that's what pagans do. Uh, but I think, I think that Christians have been very uh, intent on, historically anyway, seeing the body as a unity and, and taking great care to maintain that bodily unity, even in death. Um, having said that, I think God can do anything and God can piece things back together. Um, but it's caused me to think more about the, the aspect of what is the witness that's being made in death. Um, and as I make plans for death, like, what is the witness that I want being presented? Um, you know, one of the things that that's really stands out to me is that uh, in the ancient church, um, it was really the case that it was really only the wealthy that could afford a proper burial. Like, other, others were burned or um, you know, whatever, whatever was expedient in a sense. And wealthy Romans, we know this, and throughout, um, throughout the empire... Uh, were opening up their burial caves, their, catac- their catacombs, 
to Christians in their church because they said, well, you know, we're brothers and sisters, so they're a part of the family, so they're going to get buried in my basement. Like, <laughs> that was kind of the, that was the idea, um, and with dignity. Um, and so uh, that's actually one of the reasons that we still today um, have paupers' graveyards. Every county in Texas has one. Um, and they don't cremate. Like, if you die with nothing, they don't cremate you. They put you in a pine box and put you in the ground. Like, that's how it works. Um, and the reason is that uh, that doesn't violate really anyone's religious beliefs, usually. I mean, for the most part, that's kosher, right? It's, like, completely fine. Um, but, but the thing that's challenged me to say is, like, um, how well do things like cremation show forth this belief, this, this you know, what, what's the witness being made? Um, and I would say a couple things about that. One is that if you're going to do cremation, you should keep all the remains together. Like, scattering ashes is just not, not ideal, right? You should have them in a place, like a columbarium or something. Um, I would, yeah. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great option. Um, it's also the reason that I'm, I'm already in talks with the, with the city about having a churchyard. So the idea of, you know, you could be buried in the grass right out there, you know? Like, <laughs> why wouldn't you be? It's totally fine. Um, as long as you don't use embalming fluids that could taint the ground, it's like, it's completely fine. Um, so that's just a thought. It's like, you know, ancient Christians were used to this. And even up through the medieval period, and many, you know, if you're in the Church of England in, in the UK, you walk through a churchyard to get to church. Like, of course you do. Um, so that's something that, think about, the, think about the imagery there, though. I pass through the communion of saints on my way to exercise my membership in the communion of saints. Um, we all do so in expectation of judgment and expectation of the resurrection. So that's a wonderful kind of thing and um, something to be mindful of. Yep. Questions? You got one? With Jesus, yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think, I think you want to use both things. You want to say, yes, she's, she's with God, she's with Jesus. At the same time, you want to say, but she's also waiting for the resurrection, when her body will be raised again. Um, uh, this actually teaches our children something about human life in a really important way, that, that their bodies are sacred, their bodies have dignity. Um, um, and just to take it a step further, I think part of the reason that our culture has acted with such um, nihilism toward the body is that they really don't, at the end of the day, think the body is of any consequence. Like, well, here, great example, okay? Like, <laughs> I'll just give you the best example of this. Um, a lot of what's going on in kind of the, the, the trans identity stuff is to say, like, who I am is something that's detached from my bodily identity, right? And therefore, I can either let my body be what it is and just forget about it, or I have to kind of use technology to alter my body to conform to an unseen reality, right? While simultaneously denying that there is an unseen reality at all. Right? So, like, there's no invisible telos behind human life, right? 
It's just I have this identity that I've created off in the ether somewhere, which I don't even know how to do that, right? But, but so, so it's out there, but my body has to either conform or not conform, and that's the cause of the confusion, right? Um, you can't trust what you see. Um, Christians have said about that. It's, it's not that you inhabit a body, it's that you are a body. You're a soul. All those things go together. Um, it's not natural that they be separated. That's why we just say, death is bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> bad. <laughs> like, it's bad. Because it's a severing of who we are. Um, and I would just say that it's not God's intention to leave this the way it is. Like, it is our job. It is, it is God's intention to bring us back together to wholeness. Um, and even better than that. So I, I, think, I think we really do need to spend a lot more time thinking about what does it mean to inhabit a body? What does it mean that I say, you know, well, let's just be a good example. Like, back when we, when we go back to handshaking, you know, I'll say, I shook Doug's hand. I won't say, like, I touched his hand. Like, like I'll say, I greeted Doug. You know, I met Doug. Like, that's how, that's how we speak. And we don't just speak that way because it's expedient. We speak that way because it's true, right? And, like, and I think we really have to think about this. That the, way we think, the, way we, the way that we speak betrays what we actually think. Um, and anything else is kind of an aberration. It's sort of like, it's just not the truth. Um, so we actually do meet each other in the body. Like, what someone does to my body that's against my will is abusive or, um, or is assault for that matter. Like, why would we even care about that if we didn't think that our body actually was like anything, right? Um, that told us anything. I think it's just completely logically in inconsistent, and there's a reason for that. It's that it's unmoored from any kind of um, even earnest attempt to actually understand what the body is. I'll say that. Like, I think it's just like, I don't want to know about that. I don't care about that. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not thinking about that. Um, and, but I do think that this is kind of the, the postmodern paradigm is like, it doesn't even matter what I can see. Like, that's not the real thing. The real thing is somewhere else. I don't know what that is. I don't know how to manipulate it. I don't know how to change it. I don't know what to do about it. But it's out there, and I want to know about it and, and probably shape it. Like, <laughs> so this is scary, scary stuff, man. It's really scary. Okay, let's keep going. Um, how should you live as you await the resurrection of the body? Because I put my hope in God's resurrection of my body, I should honor and care for it. I should refrain from any violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm, demean, or violate either my body or the bodies of others. Okay, so there's a lot going on here, but it's much of what we've already said. Um, I should honor and care for my body. Um, I should keep it clean. I should keep it sound. I should keep it... This often happens in house blessings and epiphany. People are like, I really love the bathroom blessing. Like, <laughs> well, what do you love about the bathroom blessing? It's like... Because it actually, like, thinks that what goes on in a bathroom is important and not just icky and gross. I'm like, yes, exactly. Like, it's good, right? <laughs> so uh, that's something to be, be mindful of. But I would say also that this is the reason that we should reject violence against the body. It's the reason that we should reject um, uh, um, maiming the body in any way. Like, I think we have to be really clear about this. You know, there's a difference between having a limb amputated because the limb is cancerous or gangrenous. Total difference, right? You're doing this to save life. But when the purpose is to kind of alter the body to who knows what, like conform to an image of beauty or an image of like 
what I think I should be gender-wise or sex-wise or, uh, or uh, keep my body from exercising certain functions that are natural to it, right? We, we have to reject this. Um, and I, I think we should be really, and, and it's not to say like all the people who do this are bad people. I just think that, you know, they're unthoughtful. They're certainly not thinking as Christians, put it that way. Um, but we should be really careful about things like, um, just to lay it all on the ground, like gastric bypass surgery. Like, there might be a medical reason to do it, but just because you kind of like don't like your stomach very much, not a great reason. Like, just because your stomach brings you kind of problems, like um, that could be dealt with in other ways, right? Um, you know, we got to be really careful about this kind of thing because it actually says like, oh, well, my, my body can just be altered to be what I really want to be, right? Um, and that's not to say like you shouldn't try to lose weight or try to be healthy. It's to say, no, the opposite of that. Yes, you should. <laughs> like, that's the, that's the thing I want to say today. Um, but it also, it also speaks to um, how we, we really need to avoid harming, demeaning, or violating the bodies of others. Um, you know, it seems to have calmed down, but, uh, you know, in this town, for the first several years that I was here, it was, there was a lot of discussion about this. Like, what does it mean to have um, a, a bodily life that's yours? Because we were dealing with all the stuff going on at Baylor, and it was just a real mess. And, and I was saying to people, you know, we Christians actually have an answer for all this. It's that we have to treat each other as bearers of the image of God. Like, and we shouldn't just speak in bare societal terms about, like, why these things are, are awful and mean and demeaning. Like, we really do need to think about, like, hey, you're real, and when I, when I demean you, when I commit acts of violence against you, I'm hurting you. Um, and it's not some sort of, like, ancillary part to your real identity that I'm violating. I'm violating you. Um, and so I think that anthropology has to, make, has to be made very clear, right? It's also why I think, at the end of the day, some of the trans identity stuff is going to work against larger goals. Because it's basically gonna say like, well, my body is sacred, but not to me. Like my body, is re my body is real when it comes to you, but not when it comes to me. Like I can do what I want with it, but you have to like, it's just, it's, it's just inconsistent to the core. Like, what are you? You know, are you an identity that floats out there? Or are you are you, you, are you a body? So this is going to be a real problem, and I think, I think it's going to cause, and it already is causing, unbelievable torture in terms of identity for our youth in particular. Because, you know, think about, go through all that stuff as an adult, think about going through it when you're 14 or 13, and you have to reconcile this. Like, my body is going through all of this weirdness, and I don't know how to think about that, and the culture's not helping me a darn bit to think about that. It's just weird, and I don't like it, so maybe I should change it, right? Or maybe it's not me. Um, Christians need to say, nope, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> like, as unpleasant as that can be, that's you, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and just be very clear about that. Okay, let's go into the life everlasting, and I think that will be it for the day, and then we'll kind of give a preview to the sacraments. What do you know about the unending resur resurrected life of believers? I know that it will be an eternal life of joyful fellowship with our triune God, together with his saints and angels, singing his praises and serving him in the renewed creation. Okay, lots going on here. I know that it will be an eternal life of joyful fellowship. So fellowship is a wonderful word in the New Testament um, because it's actually, it's a word koinonia. It means being as one with. So this isn't just like some great giant potluck in the eternal parish hall. This is, this is much more than that. This is um, 
Christians sharing in close communion, not only with, a, with one another, but with the triune God. So all that's going on in this, and, it, and it's, uh, it's important to note that um, as we talk about what eternal life is for the Christian, it's not sort of taking up residence in a, um, uh, well, a big old apartment in the sky, right? It's, it's, about, it's about eternal life with God um, and with the saints, with the angels. Um, the fullness of my transformation, soul and body. So we speak of final sanctification. Um, I've, been a, I've been shocked to find that there are Christians speaking and teaching today who do not even believe in final, final sanctification. They just say, your state before God will always be that of a forensically justified human being who is miserable and a terrible sinner, and yet God overlooks you for all eternity. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> not, not even like the worst of Lutherans way back when believed that. They were all just like, yes, of course there's final sanctification. But, but you see what's going on here. So that there's a desire to say, no, 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 that's not, that's not important. Well, it is important. Um, listen, I mean, Read the Old Testament. God's holiness means what? He's, he's other. He's different. He's not like you. So if you, if you try to touch him, like if you even try to touch the thing that, he's, that his word is in, the, the, the ark, what happens? You're dead. And you better believe you're dead, Right? Because to, to look into the face of God and, and be unclean is a deadly thing. Um, that's why when you read Isaiah 6, and he's like, he's in the kind of like, he's just, he's not even seeing God. He's like in the throne room, and he sees all the angels like hiding their faces. And he's like, ah, woe is me. It's like, I'm going to die if I stay here any longer. And, and that, that's, that's the reality behind holiness. When we say that God is holy, that's what we mean, is that, um, that, you 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 can't you, you can't mess with God like don't like he's holy you will die um, I think that's got to be just said clearly but but if God sanctifies you washes you up makes you clean renews you after the image of His Son Jesus Christ who lives in the light of His presence then what no you're not just clean you're clean indeed right. Um, and so uh, that makes possible this entering into the divine life. Um, and serving him, so I love what it says later, is um, together with all his saints and angels, does this sound something like a liturgy that we're about to do here? Like, consider this for a moment. Like, what is it we actually enter into in the Eucharist? It's that, right? It's not just kind of that, it's that. Um, that we can't see it. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not that, because it's that. Um, is it the fullness of that? No, but it's that. Um, so I think we have to be really clear about that. That's why we see, therefore, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven. And then we sing the only song we know is sung in heaven, which is what? Holy, holy, holy. Right? Okay. Now, I, I, I've probably shared this with you in the past. If you study ancient languages, you'll know that to say things once is just sort of like a normal, you know, declarative sentence. Mm -hmm. Say things twice, you're dead serious. Say things three times, what do you got? 
you're, you're breaking through the plane, right? You're just completely like, it's, you're, you're off the charts now. You're, you're, you're speaking of things that cannot be perceived right? uh, by, by natural senses. So that's what, that's what we mean by saying holy, holy, holy. Um, it's also why I'm really gratified to know that in the, in, in the 2019 prayer book, like when we're making the confession, we say, have mercy upon us, and then what do we say? Have mercy upon us. <laughs> like, isn't once enough? No, it's not. Right? Because we're, we're speaking of something in a very deep way. Okay. Just a thought. How should you live in light of this promise of unending life? I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ. In the midst of suffering or in the face of hostility and persecution, I am sustained by the hope of a new heaven and earth, freed from Satan, evil, suffering, and death. Uh, this is what I forgot to mention as we were having this conversation on the last one, but the, the teaching of the church is that uh, we will serve God in a renewed creation, meaning that not only will our bodies be renewed um, to perfection, but the whole of creation will be restored. And let's just think about that for a little while. Um, I was raised to believe that heaven was a non-corporeal kind of place up in the clouds, no bodies. Uh, and if there were streets of gold, they were just kind of figurative, right? It's like, well, it's all a matter of figures. Um, as I continually read the New Testament and read good scholarship regarding it, I'm, more, I'm convinced fully that um, what the gospel is about is about renewing the face of the earth, renewing creation um, to be the sanctuary for the church's praise and, and glory of God. Um, where everything works as it should. Um, and it's not kind of a utopia because everything's in place to kind of make everything work. It's that when, uh, when the glory of God is exercised in creation, um, His mastery is complete. Right? So this is why the, the fathers talk a lot about when Paul writes this little, Christ shall be all in all. It's like the identity of the whole creation is the identity of Christ at the right hand of the Father. That's a wonderful thought when you think about that. That's like your identity. So what you are in the renewed creation and in heaven is in Christ. That's why Paul says, like, your life is hidden with Christ. And he's not saying bio. Your, your bios isn't hidden with Christ. Your zoe is hidden with Christ. Like, so this really, this is big. Um, that, 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 that thought alone is important. I mean, I think it's something I just want to kind of dwell on for just a second. Christians live uh, in a, what I think would be best termed, an eschatological way. You know what eschatology is? It's this kind of study of the end, right? But I want to say it in a different way, which is that we, we live life in expectation of the end. And we actually live life um, moving towards that end, being drawn towards that end, which has which is not something where we say, well, someday the end's going to begin. No, no, no. Like, Christians, Christians have been clear about this. The end is now, right? The end has already begun. Um, the end has begun in Christ. Um, that's why one of the things we talked about in Christmas is like Christmas is the beginning of the end, right? That's, that's what we really need to say. Um, let's think about this liturgically for just, just a few seconds. This church faces something like Southwest. I don't know why. Don't ask me. But, but it doesn't matter, right? For our purposes, inside this building, that's east, right? 
and most churches were built facing east. And the reason they were built facing east was that Scripture is clear that, that the, the coming of the sun will be like the coming of the sun, right, from the east. Um, that's why the star that appears above Bethlehem is seen where? In the east. Um, it's, why, uh, it's why Christians worship in the morning usually and not in the afternoon. Did you ever wonder that? Like, why Sunday morning? Why this big insistence on Sunday morning? It's because we, we get up with the rising of the sun to meet, hopefully, right, the coming of Jesus. Um, this is why I love the image that we have in the altar, right? It's, look, do you see, do you see the combination between the sun and Jesus? Do you see the, do you see the imagery? He comes bearing this cross. He comes, it's, it's, this is not just an image of his resurrection. It's an image of his second coming at the same time. Right? To, do you see how the, the figures there, they're, they're, they're sitting on literally death, which is marked out with purple, right? Because it's supposed to be Lenten. It's just like you're the death. You're sitting on death. So it's a dual image. It's both the women who came to the tomb bearing spices and it's us because we're sitting there at the grave and gate of death. That's where we are. That's who we are. Um, and, and Jesus comes with this weapon of death, the cross, redeeming it in his risen body. Okay? Um, and all of that is to say that, that that's what we look forward to eschatologically. We're, we're always facing towards that reality. We're always turning towards that reality. And this is why in some, um, in, in cathedral churches where people will say the, the office is facing each other, like east, like north and south, when they, when, they turn, when they start the Apostles' Creed, they actually turn east um, because that's how you do it. Um, for centuries, Christians um, observed the celebration of the Eucharist facing east. So even in places like St. Peter's, which doesn't face east, it faces west, uh, at the celebration of the Eucharist, they would face east. Like, there are parts of the of medieval liturgy that say, like, okay, all right, everybody turn east. <laughs> Because that's where, that's where Jesus is. Right. Um, I would say that, that this, this exists liturgically to train us to live in expectation of Christ's coming and to live in expectation of the resurrection of our bodies. Um, and so uh, it's something to consider. Right? We, we live, and part of, thinking about eschat- Chris, part of thinking eschatologically about life is to say something like this, that, that we believe that that's already happened, and yet it hasn't happened yet. Um, it's kind of a both-and scenario where, is it, has it happened? Yes, right? It happens in the resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is where it happens. Um, but the effect of that has not become universal at this point. Um, and that's what we speak of when we speak of the last things. So, so you, uh, that's what we have to look forward to, as a, as a risen body after the, after the likeness of Jesus. Um, that's, that's the good news that we Christians proclaim. All right, we'll pick up next week with the sacraments. And so it's, it's actually, this is important, the relationship between the sacraments and all that we've just said is thick. It's thick. Um, and I want to explore that. So if you, if you ever want to know like, what we Anglicans, this, a lot of people, it's their favorite part, but, um, but we'll pick up next week with the sacraments. Thank you.